0: Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org.
1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Friday morning. We're going to do our best to cover it all sequentially as well as thematically. This week in Come Follow Me, we're to cover Luke 22 and John 18, but we're also going to be in Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 22 and 23, and John chapters 18 and 19. We're going to be
0: covering a lot of texts And there's two major events that we'll spend our time on. First is the trial before the chief priest. Jesus will be taken to the chief priest. They have to find an accusation. They have to find a crime. And they have to find a crime that's going to stick in a Roman court. So they will try him in a complete violation of every aspect of the law. The great lawgiver of all mankind is going to be subject to a complete perversion of man's law. And he's going to yield and submit. And then when they find the crime that they can take to a Roman court, the second thing we'll talk about is the trial before Pilate. So first the chief priests and then Pilate. Let's start in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to pick it up in Gethsemane where he's been arrested. He is then taken to the chief priests. Starting in verse 57, this is where we pick it up. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this is where Aslan is tied to the stone table, and all of the demons of the white witch are allowed to unleash their fury on him. That's what happened in that room that night. The scribes, the elders, the high priest, the Pharisees, were gathered together to find an accusation against him. Verse 59, the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Unfortunately, verse 60, they found none. And though many witnesses came, yet they found none. At last came two false witnesses that said... This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So then they turned to Christ and asked him to answer. Verse 62, answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Jesus held his peace. The high priest answered him and said, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. The Savior's response was, thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. They end up rending their clothes because he's committed blasphemy. What think ye, they answered, he is guilty of death. And they spit in his face and buffeted him and smote him with the palms of their hands.
1: Now, what that council is, is that's the Sunedrion or the Sanhedrin. And it was the governing body or like the Boule, the Senate, the council. It'd be like the city council, but not on a secular level. This is a religious council of individuals that are distinguished. And this religious council called the Sanhedrin probably had 71 members. And... They were the aristocracy of Jerusalem. Now, the Sanhedrin included the high priest, who, according to tradition, could break ties. So if there was 70 on the Sanhedrin, then the 71st member was the high priest. In this case, it's Caiaphas. And so in essence, if you had a 35 to 35 split, then he would break the tie. This is how they kind of navigated and answered questions with regard to religion. And it was, the Sanhedrin was under high priestly control. And, you know, every city in Judaism, in the time period that Jesus lived in, the different cities did have uh, bodies like this, that Took care of judicial matters. And there were varying sizes of Sanhedrin. Sometimes it could have 30, sometimes it could have 500 members on their Sanhedrin body. And so, at least according to rabbinic tradition, judges proved themselves locally, if they were like somebody that was honorable, they could be promoted to the Sanhedrin, and they could take part in the decision-making body. Now, it seems to indicate, at least the way I'm reading Matthew— if you get to the bit right there where it talks about in verse 59, that all the counsel or all the Sanhedrin put false witnesses out there, what we see here seems to indicate a unanimous verdict of guilty. And here's the irony. A unanimous verdict of guilt pronounced on the same day as the trial in their own law constituted an automatic acquittal and the defendant was to be set free. This is in their own law. Because such proceedings, according to their own rabbinic tradition, smacked of collusion. If you're tried and everybody in the room is against you, then there's got to be a conspiracy. Because that many people can't agree on one thing. Andrew Skinner writes, ironically, the very thing Jewish law was structured to prevent, conspiracy, Was the very thing that made the law of no effect in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. Skinner continues where he says, Jesus bore this with patience. This tribulation, he bore it, he suffered it. He suffered his indignity with dignity. He endured scorn and physical abuse all by himself. No one was with him, no man defended him. Now remember, last week in John, we talked about Jesus was going to send an advocate a defense attorney, a paraclete, the comforter. Well, in this case, Jesus doesn't have one. He's on his own. He is treading the wine press alone. No one spoke on his behalf, Skinner continues. No one protected him. He was rejected of men, truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There is nothing anyone can tell Jesus about loneliness or the unfairness of life. He is able to have perfect empathy for all of us because he experienced all things. He even descended below all things. Though condemned to death by evil conspirators and premeditating murderers under the most unfair of all circumstances, Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, willingly surrendered himself in an attitude of perfect meekness. And still, the bitter cup was not yet empty. I think that's just a powerful quote by Andrew Skinner, talking about the indignity of this circumstance of Jesus being judged by people when he is the judge. Now, one of the members of the Sanhedrin that we're going to talk about as we go through the gospel narratives is this individual named Nicodemus. And another is Joseph of Arimathea, and there's a lot of legends that are associated with Joseph, and one of them is that he was very wealthy and powerful, and Joseph is going to be someone that's going to stand up for Jesus in the midst of this body, and so the way I read this is when it says that all the Sanhedrin was there, all the council is what it says in the King James, sought false witness to put Jesus to death. I'm going to say I think that's hyperbole. I don't think the whole Sanhedrin's there because I believe that there's members of the body like Nicodemus and Joseph that are on the Sanhedrin that stick up for Jesus. I don't think the Sanhedrin is completely unanimous. This is what I think happened. I think the Sanhedrin did a little bit of quiet uh, double dealing behind closed doors, and they put together a majority of the Sanhedrin so that they could stack the deck against Jesus— I'm just saying I don't think that everybody was there because I think there's members of the Sanhedrin that see that Jesus is legitimate. Now, the Jews know they can't get Jesus convicted by Rome for any claims religiously. He could talk about all day like being the son of man or being the son of God. That's not going to get him convicted in a Roman court but they can get him on being a Messiah or an anointed one. That's what a a Mashiach is or Christos is an anointed one, anointed to be king. And so if they can get Jesus on this,
0: they can get him convicted by Rome. And the reason they needed a Roman court is because they don't have the rights to capital punishment. Right. So the Jews themselves cannot put him to death. They have to have the Romans do that. So they've got to come up with a crime that the Romans will convict him on and execute a capital punishment because they can't put him to death. But they're thirsting for his blood. So there's their challenge. How do we come up with a crime that we can take to a Roman court that's guilty of capital punishment— when what he's really done is he's violated our spiritual understandings of the law.
1: But, but here's the irony. There's no blasphemy in saying you're the Messiah. There are people all over the place in Jewish history saying, I'm the Messiah, and it's not blasphemy. And the only one who couldn't <laughs> commit blasphemy is him. It's so ironic. he was the Messiah. Right. It's just so ironic. So they can't get him for what they want to get him for? And what they get him for isn't blasphemy in their words. So what is blasphemy in their words? Because if you look in verse 65, Caiaphas is very angry, and it says that he rent his garments. Now that's a sign of extreme rage or grief. And so what's the blasphemy charge? And the blasphemy charge is the Son of Man statement that Jesus makes, where he says, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. When Jesus says this, that's blasphemy to the Sanhedrin, at least those that are sitting there. Now, the question is, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Son of Man? The statement that Jesus makes here about being the Son of Man really ties into so many texts that are not in the biblical record, that are not canonized in the Hebrew Bible. But we do have one such text, and that's Daniel 7. And so in Daniel 7... We read about the kingdoms of this world being put down by the Son of Man. Now, in the Hebrew, it does say one like the Son of Man. I'm looking at Daniel 7, verse 13. We read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. We have him sitting on this throne in verse 10 where there were fiery streams that issued forth and came out. And we read a lot about this in the ascent literature where individuals ascend up and they see the throne of God and they see fiery streams. And then here, at least in this instance, in Daniel 7, we have the son of man coming. Now, what's he coming to do? He's coming so that the saints can possess the kingdom. That's Daniel 7, 22. And then we read in verse 27, that the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is a vision in the context of, I believe, second century Judaism where it's textualized and the Jews use this vision to teach this idea that the son of man will come and institute a kingdom where everything will be fixed. Now, I'm going to quote a book from an individual named Sigmund Mowinkel. He wrote a book called He That Cometh, The Messiah Concept in the Old Testament and Later Judaism. This is Sigmund Moe surveying the literature of Judaism in the centuries before Jesus and after Jesus. And a lot of the things that he's citing are not in our canonized Bible. There's a whole body of literature that were sacred to the Jews of this time period. And remember, the Bible that we have today, the New Testament and Old Testament, was put together by a decision of councils over time. And it really wasn't until the end of the fourth century, our time, the fourth century in the common era that the Bible kind of coalesces into what we have today. And so there were centuries of tradition and committees and councils that would look at these texts and make decisions. Is this to be canonized or not? And so just know that, that there's all this stuff out there on the son of man and very little of it is in your Hebrew Bible. So I took the last 100 pages of his book, and I basically distilled 100 pages down to 12 bullet points that we put in the show notes. So just know the Son of Man, at least in these texts outside the Bible, in the ascent literature that the Jews are aware of, and the early apostles are quoting this stuff and they're using this, and a lot of this is coming out of the Enoch literature, the Son of Man is mortal, but he is also called the Son of God. According to their own literature, the Son of Man is also subordinate to God. He was created. His name was named, meaning that he had a preexistent state, and the Son of Man was known to God before the world was made. He is also the Lord's anointed, and he's also called in many of their texts, the Son of the Most High God. The Son of Man has authority over all of the cosmos, all created order, according to these texts. He knows the secrets of wisdom because God has given him revelatory experiences related to light, knowledge, and divine wisdom. The image or idea of wisdom is replete in the ascent literature, like the ascension of Isaiah, the apocalypse of Moses, the Enoch literature. Wisdom is a common thread. Now, if you think about this, that's something that Nephi keeps talking about being initiated into the mysteries and having wisdom in these kinds of things. The son of man has divine glory or the power of God. He is clothed by God. He clothes the son of man in glory and honor. And the son of man is directly connected to the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is connected to the son of man. The Son of Man is also instrumental in establishing God's plan for a perfected world at the end times. He is also the one who is to judge all things, and no one will be able to lie to the Son of Man. And finally, the Son of Man will sit on the throne of glory with God. Now, like I said, this is 100 pages of Sigmund Moe surveying the literature of Judaism in the centuries before Jesus and after Jesus. There's all this stuff out there on the Son of Man, and very little of it is in your Hebrew Bible. But Caiaphas has read this stuff. Now, he may not have read all of it, but he knows who the Son of Man is. And so today in Latter-day Saint speech, when we speak of the Son of Man, we have this really awesome thing called the Pearl of Great Price. And in the Pearl of Great Price, we learn that our Heavenly Father is a man of holiness, and his Son is the Son of Man, capital M. Now, I think pretty much the Latter-day Saints are unique in Christian tradition. Now, even believing this idea that our Father in heaven is a man. I mean, think about this. Even thinking that the Father and the Son are two distinct people and that they're individuals and that they're men, in many Christian circles, they would say that's blasphemy. We have creeds and councils that have basically taken away that idea of who God is. But as Latter-day Saints, we sit in that position. And in my reading of the New Testament— the doctrine that we teach about the Son being the Son of Man and the Father being the man of holiness, it just sits square in this tradition of all this stuff going on in the New Testament. And in my reading, Caiaphas knows this, Caiaphas gets it, and he says, You can't say that. And that's what gets him. But now here's the rub. In Caiaphas' mind, he's thinking, I can't get you convicted on any of this stuff. Rome doesn't care how I read Son of Man literature. So the thing that makes him mad, I can't get him on, but he's like, well, if I can get
0: him uh, convicted of being the Messiah, well, now I've got him. So now the chief priests have their accusation. They believe that this man should be put to death because he's violated their laws. And now they believe they have an accusation that's going to stick in a Roman law. that This man is a threat to Rome because he claims to be king of the Jews, and he's going to overthrow the government. So now they march him to the Roman court of Pilate. Now, just total irony here. In verse 28 of John 18, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the Hall of Judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the Hall of Judgment, lest they should be defiled. Do you see the complete irony there? They are putting to death an innocent man. They are putting Christ to death, and yet they don't want to go into the hall of judgment lest they be defiled. So ironic. Yeah, it's totally ironic. I mean, they're killing
1: the Son of God, but they're so worried about their cleanliness. One commentator wrote, Houses of non-Jews were ritually impure, according to their own Jewish law, and so by entering this residence... Scrupulous Jews could contract Gentile impurity and hence prove unable to participate fully in the Passover. When the priestly leaders bring Jesus before Pilate, John declares that they avoided entering the praetorium lest they be defiled. Some early commentators identified the praetorium with the fortress Antonia adjoining the temple courts where a Roman garrison remained on the temple mount year-round. Some earlier and most current commentators, however, prefer the old palace of Herod the Great. This palace is somewhat farther from the temple, but remained in the wealthy upper district, not far from the temple. Its lavishness suited it as a temporary residence for the governor, who would have probably taken the best quarters available anyway. And it also better fits the direct ancient sources concerning where the governor stayed when he was in Jerusalem. And so, because they're so sensitive to this, They would have not gone into this residence because they're so sensitive to their law. Most of these guys on the Sanhedrin, they probably had their own mikvah in their own residence. And in this time period that this is happening, most Roman officials would have sought to accommodate the Jews, especially those with religious sensitivities. Though Pilate initially proved unsympathetic towards their customs, here he is now more inclined to work with them such ritual purity on the, on the part of these guys was not high on John's list of virtues. I mean if you go back to John chapter 2 verses 6 through 10, we kind of read this this blatant contrast between their strict observance of ritual purity while ignoring the law's ethical demands. It epitomizes the irony that John is portraying here in his gospel, though not unique to the fourth gospel. Other gospels, the synoptics do highlight this irony, but John really hits it home. These individuals wanted to eat the Passover, but they didn't understand that in them killing Jesus, they were actually slaying the Passover lamb that was to be consumed. Now, we need to highlight this. It's not that big of a deal, but we need to just make mention of this, that in John's narrative, they're having Jesus crucified on a different day. Because in John's narrative, Jesus is the Passover lamb that was to be slain. The lamb before the foundation of the world was to be slain. So John is going to portray Jesus as being slain the day before the synoptics do. But either way, John and the
0: synoptic gospel writers are portraying this irony To make a point. So in verse 29, Pilate comes out and says, what accusation bring ye against this man? And they answer. They don't give the accusation. They just simply say, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. Pilate says, take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. There's the rub. There's the issue is they can't put Christ to death. They don't have the power of capital punishment. They need Rome to do that. So now Pilate takes over. And I think this is one of the most powerful, applicable lessons I have learned. Pilate has taught me a life lesson. The lesson is this. If you cannot be right and liked, be right. If you try to be right and liked when you can't. If you try to compromise, it will grow bigger and bigger, and in the end, you will be neither right nor liked. That's a powerful lesson from Pilate. Now, let me let me walk you through that lesson. Pilate now takes him, Now, obviously, the accusation is this is the king of the Jews, because in verse 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers and says, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? The Savior's response was, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate says, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate says, what is true? Now, just as a side note, in the gospel of Nicodemus, that conversation continues. And after Pilate says, what is truth? Jesus adds, truth is of heaven. Pilate saith, is there not truth upon earth? Jesus saith unto Pilate, thou seest how that they which speak the truth are judged of them that have authority upon the earth. Pilate comes back and says in verse 38, I find in him no fault at all. Now that's where Pilate stands. This man is not guilty of anything, he seems to suggest, much less of death. I find in him no fault at all. Now, what is the duty of an elected official or any type of a government official who has personal knowledge that this person that's being accused of a crime is not guilty of that crime? What is Pilate's moral obligation here? He needs to free Jesus. But now, go to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. So he knows that they want him dead. And he knows that Jesus is not worthy of death. And there's the situation. He cannot be right and liked. And what's adding pressure to this, look at verse 19 of Matthew 27. His wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So all the more pressure to let him go. The right thing to do is to free him. Now, I know what happened happened for a reason, but that doesn't mean we give Pilate a pass. And he knew that Jesus was innocent and he should have let him go. But he didn't because he wants to be liked. Now, here's the lesson. If you can't be right and liked, and you try to compromise, it's going to blow out of control. So he tries to make four compromises. The wrong thing to do is to put an innocent man to death. So let me see if I can find a way to find an in-between. Can I be a little bit right and liked? So he's going to try four things to see if he can find some way to be liked and yet not have to put him to death. Now watch them escalate. Attempt number one is Luke's account in Luke 23. Verse four, after Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, they were the more fierce, saying, he stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all jewelry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Ding, 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 there's my window, thinks Pilate. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Now, do you see the compromise? Pilate knows he's innocent and the right thing to do is to set him free. I don't have to be the bad guy. I'm going to pass the buck to someone else.
1: Just as a side note, Bryce, I don't know what Pilate knew, But the people that wrote the Gospels write that Herod didn't want to kill John. So I'm connecting this, and maybe I'm stretching it. But what if Pilate knew Herod has already executed a guy who is a Jew, a religious leader, and he knew that he didn't want to do it. And so if he knew this, maybe he sends him to Herod in the hopes, hey, Herod, here's your second chance. Here's a do-over where you won't kill this guy. Now, like I said... Do you see
0: him wanting to do the right thing, though? I see that as a possibility. I want to do the right thing. I want Jesus to be off the hook, but I don't want to be the one that has to do it. Right. So he sends him to Herod. This compromise doesn't work nor does it work in my life or in yours. If you know the right thing to do, but are cowardly and don't want to do it, and you want someone else to be the bad guy to do it, you are on the same road as Pilate. Now, what happens? In verse eight, when Herod sees him, he's exceedingly glad he was desirous to see him for a long season because he's heard many things. So he questions Jesus in verse nine in many words, But the Savior answered him nothing.
1: It's interesting. I think this is the only person that Jesus doesn't talk to in the New Testament. I mean, he even talks to the demons. So there's some irony here. Now, this is James Talmadge, and he says this, As far as we know, Herod is distinguished as the only being who saw Christ face to face and spoke to him but never heard his voice. For penitent sinners, weeping women, prattling children, for the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis, even the perjured high priest and his obsequious and insolent underling, and for Pilate the pagan, Christ had words of comfort or instruction, of warning or rebuke, of protest or denunciation. Yet for Herod, he had but disdainful and kingly silence.
0: What a great quote by Elder Talmadge. And because of that, Herod set him at naught. that's luke twenty three eleven, mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So it didn't work. Attempt to compromise number one, to pass the buck and have someone else be the bad guy when you know what the right thing to do is, didn't work.
1: And Herod's over two on how he treats religious leaders, at least in the text, right? So Herod's getting a chance. The Lord's always trying to give people chances. So then he comes back
0: to Pilate. Now listen to what Pilate says. Verse 14, this is Luke 23, 14. Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him nor yet Herod, for I sent into him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So now he gets to compromise number two. He's up the ante a little bit, and he's going to make more of a moral compromise and do less of a right thing, because he's trying to be liked. So verse 16, he says, I will therefore chastise him and release him, because he knew there was a Jewish tradition. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 15, Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. Now, do you see the compromise? First, he's just passing the buck and saying, hey, you let someone else take care of it. Came right back to him. Okay, now I'm willing to accuse what I know is an innocent man. I'm going to take advantage of this tradition and condemn him so you're happy, but free him so that my conscience is happy. But let's pause. There's a lot to this little story about releasing Barabbas at the feast that we need to get into. But let's just pause on that and remember compromise number two is not going to work. But let's talk about this tradition of releasing a prisoner at the feast.
1: I want to just acknowledge that in scholarship, a lot of scholars will come out and say, hey, listen, there was no such custom, there was no such Passover custom of amnesty, that somebody got to be set free, and like most of the customs of the Roman administration in Palestine, like most of them, this one is not attested in the historical sources. But, and I love what this one scholar says, the assumption should begin in favor rather than against the claims if no hard evidence to the contrary is available. If the particular custom is unattested outside the Gospels, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And then, and we have a ton of stuff in the show notes for those of you that are interested, in scholarship, it's well attested that Rome did have customs which gave amnesty, especially during holidays, a lot of them. Romans sometimes deferred to local custom in forgiving offenses. They also sometimes freed prisoners in mass during local feasts, Roman officials often followed, but were not bound by the precedence of their predecessors. And so, prefix were in any case free to issue amnesty. Pilate had the authority to issue amnesty to Jesus, even if Jesus would have been guilty. Pilate had that kind of authority. So, Pilate offering amnesty could have been a custom that Pilate himself initiated, though it is more likely an earlier one that he decided to continue. I think that's the way I read it, but I also want to acknowledge the other position when people say, hey, you guys, you Christians that are reading this document, we can't find any source that says there was a Passover custom like this. So the gospel writers are just making it up. And my defense of that would be, well, historically, there were things like this during holidays where the local prefect could issue amnesty. It did happen, and it happened often in the Roman Empire, and there are sources historically to back this up. Like I said, for those of you that are like, okay, what are the sources? I would just say, Go to the show notes. That's the beginning of the thread. You start pulling the thread, start reading the sources, and it's quite extensive. And so I'm going to give a pass to our writers and say, hey, maybe they're privy to stuff that we don't know. I just sit in that space of ignorance and say, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So that being said, then the next question is, okay, what is the spiritual message? What does it symbolize? And this is where I think we can really gain some spiritual insight in, in reading this. And we got to go back to the Day of Atonement ritual back in Leviticus. You see, Pilate's decision to release Barabbas could be a motif that symbolizes the Day of Atonement ritual. This was the Jewish holiday, remember, when we had two animals, and one was cast out into the wilderness, and then one was slain. The release of Barabbas could be interpreted as a symbolic representation of the release of the scapegoat into the wilderness, with Jesus taking on the role as the goat that was to be sacrificed. You see, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were presented before the high priest. And what do we have here? Two men being presented in front of this Jewish crowd. Now, my take on this crowd, I think that the Sanhedrin, those that voted to have Jesus killed, have stacked the deck. They have put people that they knew that had notable influence, people that wanted Jesus to be crucified, and they stacked this space with their people so that they could make it look like it was a majority. That's kind of my reading of it, and it's happening on Friday morning. But either way you want to read it, what we have is two individuals. One is set free, and the other is to die. And what do we have in the Day of Atonement ritual? The same thing, except for its goats. All of the Gospel writers discuss Barabbas and his freedom, and they associate it with the trial of Jesus. But in John's account, to me, I see a more expressed connection to the Day of Atonement. That's kind of how I'm reading John. Now, the last thing I want to note here is the name of Barabbas. It means the son of the father. And so what we have is that we have the true son of the father, Jesus of Nazareth, and we have Barabbas, the son of the father. Now, Barabbas is a robber or a revolutionary, and Jesus is being killed as a revolutionary. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas is the son of the father. What if Barabbas represents me. What if I am set free? I am the son of the father and I am set free because the son of the father laid down his life.
0: Beautiful symbolism that because he is slain, I am set free. But back to Pilate. Pilate's attempt to compromise is not going to work. In Matthew 27, 21, whither of the twain will ye that I release unto him? And they say Barabbas. So it didn't work. He didn't get to free Jesus, which he wants to because he knows he's innocent. So then Pilate says in 22, again, pleading with them, can I do the right thing? Will you let me do the right thing and still like me? What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto him, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why? What evil hath he done? Pleading with them to let him set him free. I want your approval. He's still trying to be liked. He says, what evil hath he done? And they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. So now he's got compromise number three. And this one is, okay, I'll slay him, but you have to be accountable for his blood. You have to take his blood upon you. He didn't think they would. He thought they would balk at that. Now, he's using their own tradition to see if he can get them to not do this. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, If one be found slain in the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath slain him. You go to the nearest city, you slay a heifer. And then, verse 6, all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. I think he's playing on that tradition to say, I am putting his blood on you. I am not going to put him to death. You're asking him to be put to death. I'm trying to wash myself from this responsibility. I think he was hoping that they would say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, we're not going to be held accountable for this, which is so ironic, because if you want to jump to Acts chapter 5, verse 28, listen to what they say here. Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, intending to bring this man's blood upon us. So later on, when Peter and Paul are preaching, they are adamant, we are not responsible for that man's death. We are not. His blood is not on us. But when Pilate was hoping they would balk at that and not make him put him to death, what do they do? When he washes his hands, verse 25, Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Didn't work, Pilate. They're still demanding his death. And if you don't step up and do the right thing, you're going to go all the way to execute him. Washing his hands did not stop this. He tried putting the responsibility on them. I'll put him to death if you're willing to take the responsibility. And they said, you bet we will. Didn't even hesitate. And he doesn't want to put him to death. So he's got one more compromise. What's one thing you don't do to an innocent man? You don't scourge him. But Pilate's going to do that. He's going to scourge him and then bring forth a bloodied, Beaten up man and plead with them, Have I done enough? I don't think he's guilty. I think he's innocent, but have I done enough? Can I be free of this? And they won't let him. So we're going to read this story in John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Jesus was probably
1: stripped and tied to a pillar or post and beaten with what they called the flagella, which was leather whips whose Thongs were knotted and interspersed with bits of iron or bone or spike and just brutally beaten. Like many other peoples, Rome did not limit the number of lashes. And so sometimes a victim who wasn't even sentenced to death died just from this. We read this in some of Josephus's stuff. Josephus at one time becomes very powerful and he ends up, he's a Jew who ends up working with the Romans, against Jews. So in his lifetime, he actually had opponents scourged, and when they scourged people, they did not limit the number of lashes. And in Josephus's own writings, it's pretty graphic for this podcast, so we put this in the show notes if you want to read some of the historical stuff. But Josephus was actually in a position when he was working with the Romans against other Jews, his fellow Jews, He perpetuated great violence in scourging. There were some individuals historically that actually thought the flagellum was actually merciful. Now, that sounds weird. Like, how can being scourged be a thing of mercy? This was their logic. If you scourge somebody with that instrument of torture, then you would put the prisoner in such a weakened condition that they're almost dead, anyways. So that when they became crucified, their death would come really fast. They looked at this as actually a form of mercy in their own strange logic. And so as I read this stuff, these accounts of what they, what human beings actually did to each other, I'm horrified. And my assumption is when Pilate has Jesus scourged, I think Pilate is putting Jesus in a position where he's so not even recognizable in the hopes that he doesn't have to execute him. In other words, he's trying to play on the sympathy of the crowd and it's just not gonna work. Now, before we go on, I just wanna acknowledge this. Uh, A lot of this is coming from the scholarship of Raymond Brown, There's strong evidence to indicate that John is getting his gospel written after the temple is destroyed, and there's this split between Judaism and Christianity, and the author of John's gospel is trying to make sure that everybody who has power in Rome know that the Christians are not your enemy. The Christians are not out to subjugate Roman authority, and even Pilate acknowledges this. This really does portray Jesus as more sympathetic with Pilate continually struggling with this inner turmoil. What do I do? Jesus is innocent. I can't do this. Part of this could be from the writer's perspective, trying to convince Rome that the Christians are not a threat. Now, I just want to acknowledge that before we continue because... I'm not trying to say this isn't historical. I'm just trying to acknowledge the nuance and some of the ways that John is
0: portraying this. So back in chapter 19, verse 4, after scourging him and putting a plated crown of thorns on his head and covering him in a purple robe, Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Do you see him just pleading? But why doesn't he do the right thing? Pilate, you have power to do it. He's just so caught up in being liked that he's not going to be right. I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. And he must have been bloodied and unrecognizable almost. So when Jesus comes forward and Pilate says, Behold the man, the chief priest thereof, and the officer saw him and cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Now Pilate says, Take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered and said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Now watch what that does to Pilate. Verse 8 When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he was more afraid. You mean I'm going to put to death possibly the Son of God? So he pulls Jesus back into the judgment hall. Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus says, thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I don't know if Jesus was trying to ease his conscience or not, but you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. So maybe he's wanting to do the right thing. Maybe he's actually going to find a way to do the right thing. The Jews cry out, If you let this man go, then you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Now, there's no question he wants to be liked by Caesar, even if that means potentially putting the Son of God to death. He's so caught up in being liked He's going to go all the way and do the very thing his conscience told him not to do. So verse 14, it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he says to the Jews, behold, your king. They cry out away with him, away with him, crucify him. And one more time, shall I crucify your king? And they say something that for the first time, is very, very true. We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Now, here's the irony. Does he end up popular to the Jews? Does he end up more liked? Do they honor him and revere him after all of this? He sought to be right and liked, and he ended up neither right nor liked. For me, one of the great lessons of Pilate is, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do the right thing. I love how Joseph Smith worded it. He said, The object with me is to obey and teach others to obey God in just what He tells us to do. It mattereth not whether the principle is popular or unpopular. I will always maintain a true principle, even if I stand alone in it. That is character, and that is courage. Thomas S. Monson said, Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but as the determination to live decently. A moral coward is one who is afraid to do what he thinks is right because others will disapprove or laugh. One of the most powerful lessons I have ever learned was taught to me by Pilate. A coward who could have done the right thing, but was so concerned about being laughed at or minimized or mocked, he ended up neither right nor liked.
1: And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we discuss the events that are contained in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. The crucifixion of our Lord. Now don't worry,
0: Sunday's coming. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.